This is Tidings, and I'm Hazel Kahn. My guest today is Maya Laska-Walfish, psychoanalytic psychotherapist specializing in transgenerational trauma and also author of Letter to Breslau. Maya is speaking to us from London via Skype. Maya, welcome to Tidings and to WPKN Radio. Thank you so much. I'm really pleased that you'll be sharing your story and your expertise, two different things, both as somebody who has inherited the trauma of your mother's concentration camp experience during World War II in Germany, but now as a psychologist, you can also examine that trauma in yourself and others. So thank you. Thank you for being here. And so I'm interested in you as both these people, the, the child, the daughter of the mother, the concentration camp victim, and, and the psychologist mm-hmm. yourself. I'd like you to start, if you would, with your mother's story, the events that led up to your being born and growing up in England. Sure. So one of the really critical and significant things about my family's story um, is that uh, that my mother and her two sisters were born into a very kind of cultured, typical sort of German-European home where music, theatre were the things that were highly valued. And and being Jewish was secondary. Everybody knew, they all knew they were Jewish, but there there was never a strong uh, emphasis on Judaism. And so... They were very liberal. The place that they were born was a, no longer Germany. It's now Poland. It's called Breslau, hence the name of my book. Um, and uh, my grandfather was a lawyer, and my grandmother was a very wonderful, uh, beautiful violinist. And the first 13, 14 years of my mother's life, and she was the youngest of the three sisters, was pretty idyllic. Um, and... I think that the kind of incredible values that were instilled by her parents were the things, other things that that were sufficient to allow her to survive, not only surviving, but living. Because there's many ways to survive. Mm. But I think living is a very different matter. So um, this wonderful family came to an end very at a very premature age, but somehow my mother and her sister survived the horrors that that befell them and millions of others. Which concentration camps were they in? First of all, what happened was my mother and and Renata were tried as criminals rather than um, just Jews, which was an advantage because it meant it brought in time. So my mother and Renata spent the first year in the Yawa, in the jail in Breslau and were tried as criminals. So then Renata, my aunt, was sent to penitentiary hard labour in the East, and my mother stayed in prison a little longer, and they were both then sent to Auschwitz separately. So when they said goodbye to each other in prison, they didn't think they'd ever see each other again. So then they were in Auschwitz for a year, and then they were transported to Belsen, where they were eventually liberated some seven or eight months later. There was 1945? Five, yeah, mm-hmm. 45. And then, of course, but many people don't realise that, it's that they couldn't go anywhere. There was nowhere to go. So they lived for nearly another year in the liberated Belsen 
concentration camp, obviously under very different conditions, but uh, there was nowhere to go for a long time. And so, so where, where did they go? Well, eventually they uh, were sort of helped by a wonderful Jewish officer who smuggled them into Brussels and they eventually got papers that got them to the United Kingdom. This was a country that they both were very definite about because my grandfather had always said the British were very civilised and a very sophisticated uh, country and that, that would have been where their parents would have wanted them to go. I, I wish my mother had chosen America or Israel. Well, it wasn't Israel yet, but because I would have done much better. But this is the place that my mother chose, and so this is where I was born. You said that you thought you would have done better in another country than England. Why was that? There were many more people like me in America and uh, Israel. And I never came across another person with the sort of background that I had until I was a young adult, or not even a young adult, sort of in my 30s. There was a very small population, it, or maybe the fact that my parents had nothing to do with Jewish life in, at all. So I had no opportunity to come across people like me. So I, I always felt or knew there was something very different about me, but I didn't know what it was, and there was no explanation offered and no one else to talk to about it because it was sort of so abstract, really, and it, no context for it at all. When did you know that you were different? There, there's different levels of knowing. I have no memories of ever feeling normal, whatever normal is, of course, whatever normal is. But I always felt deeply, deeply uncomfortable in my skin. You know, I, I was sort of just bewildered, completely bewildered by the world and, and, and the world that I was born into. But of course I say that reflectively because I wouldn't have had the language to describe any of it then, but I absolutely always knew and it was always deeply painful that I was different. For a child being different is no advantage. Kids want to be the same as each other and that there was nothing that I could identify with. You know, going to someone's home, for example, would be a very strange, challenging experience because everything that they had was totally exotic to me, whether it was white bread or, you know, two kinds of jam, or I was brought up on the most Spartan, you don't need more than one of anything background. So. I would sort of have two places of investigation when I would go into people's houses. The contents of people's fridges and their medicine cupboards. Hmm. These were the two places that I would sort of go to. That's what I did. You didn't know, of course, at that time that you were suffering from this transgenerational trauma. But what I would like to know is some of the, the symptoms of that trauma in you. Your mother was absent a lot. My, mo my mother was absent a lot, not only literally, but metaphorically. I had huge separation anxiety. You know, that quite literally, I would believe and feel that I would never see my mother again. And some of her uh, leavings were long, weeks at a time. Uh, and I would be sent to various places in her absence because my father couldn't cope with two children at home. So I developed massive separation anxiety. The other overt symptom was I 
was unable to self-soothe. I had no kind of internal resources to make myself feel better. So I looked outside and the first addiction or the first compulsion was food. There are photographs of me aged two when I am not a plump little girl, but an obese little girl. So the only kind of way that I would receive soothing was by being fed by various caregivers. So when my mum, my mother was there, she was always about to leave again. My mother had to do that, both, both uh, the income that she earned to, to support the family, but also her sanity. My mother's sanity, I'm sure, was supported by this life that she had within the English Chamber Orchestra. And my mother had a lot of life to make up for. But as a child, the absences for me were terrible. You haven't said yet that she was a cellist. My mother survived the Holocaust because she played the cello. She knew from such a young age what she wanted to do and have, and that was she always wanted to be a cellist. I mean, I think from the age of five or six. So the cello was always central to my mother's life and her identity. So when the war ended, the thing that she was most determined to return to was music. In the concentration camp, it saved her. Uh, Alma Rosé, who was the niece of Gustav Mahler, was in, the, in Birkenau as a prisoner, came and met my mother and said, well, we need a cellist in the women's orchestra. My mother couldn't believe there was any orchestra. No, how, who doesn't believe there's an orchestra in these places? All concentration camps had orchestras. Um, and indeed, she was most welcome as one of the few actually talented musicians into the Women's Orchestra of Birkenau. And that absolutely did save her life and helped her to save the life of her sister, Renata. Mother's going to be 95 in two weeks. You wrote somewhere that your mother was a reticent, I think you said, storyteller, a reluctant storyteller. There was a moment when they first came to England, when they were desperate to talk and desperate to be asked questions, but people didn't ask because you don't talk about bad things. You know, it's not polite or whatever it is, but nobody asked any questions and they soon settled into a limbo. The life that was now and the life that was then. So my mother settled for a silence that then became second nature. And my mother is the most sort of non-elaborate person anyway. That's part of why she's so powerful, because she would tell you what you need to know and no more. There are no embellishments. That's it. It is what it is. That's manifest in all, many, many ways, you know, that, that kind of reticence, reluctance, self-control, all of which I'm the complete opposite of. So when she came to England, it was considered impolite to ask her too many questions about her experiences. Is, is that part of it? To probe about those, it was being indiscreet. And, and she would have liked maybe to speak more about them? I can honestly say for sure that my mother and her sister wanted to be asked because they thought, they thought that they would come and tell their story and it would be, you know, a, a kind of a way in which ensuring that such things could never happen again. You know, they were, after all, survivors. But they soon learned that that was not 
case. Now, British culture, uh, you know, we're kind of known or they're known for sort of being quite repressed. And there was also, I think, tremendous guilt, you know, and people rather not know. I mean, how do you begin to tell those stories? It's kind of impossible or it appeared to be impossible. And the fact that in those days, it was much easier to be silent because you could only sort of rely on hearsay, what people tell you. Uh, there was very limited outlets for information. Uh, but also at the same time, the reason she didn't tell you and your brother these things is because she wanted to protect you. Absolutely. So, so there are two different reasons to be silent. At the very least, there are two reasons. One was, you know, as you say, to protect us, because how do you tell your children that your grandparents have been murdered and shot into their graves? How do you, you know, how do you do that? And also, I think, you know, to protect herself, that she really, you know, if we want to use a psychological term, just it, it, it is such a powerful example of disassociating. And my mother did it really well. She did it really well. I want to get now into how, how did that then affect you? You knew there was something. Did you think of it that she was had a secret she wasn't telling you? We're talking about the trauma being transmitted. So how did the trauma get transmitted? I've described to you the sort of early manifestations of being without any internal capacity to comfort myself. And with that in mind, the things that I resorted to as a child, that was ongoing. Mm -hmm. I always felt disenfranchised. I didn't belong anywhere. And so I found compensatory behaviours. I never felt that I was acceptable. I became very skilled at a young age of, of finding ways to sort of <clears throat> make myself indispensable. You know, and I'm talking about at a young age, and I would be the one that would steal the money to buy the sweet. I created an identity for myself in the absence of, of having any real sense of self. The way in which suffering is evaluated and allowed to be credible or not is powerfully informed by, certainly in my family or in, in my mother's in the narrative that I grew up with. Psychologist Maya Lasker-Wolfish is in London talking about the transmission of transgenerational trauma. This is Tidings on WPKN Radio. My own experience of suffering was never sort of um, validated or acknowledged because it could never be as bad as what she had suffered. And so when the narrative quite literally is, you know, you're not starving, you've got parents and, you know, nobody's about to throw you in the gas chamber. It kind of shuts you up pretty quick, mm. but utterly confusing because then you're left with a set of experience, but well, no understandable context and a sense that I was told, no, you're not suffering. You know, you're not suffering because suffering is something very, very different. And it adds to, you know, an already very powerful sense of confusion. And so I began to think about much later in life, you know, in my thinking about trauma, the whole idea of the hierarchy of suffering, which I think is a critical, critical condition that affects all of us in families, second generation families, where they weren't first time witnesses. But my God, their lives have been informed by the experience of their parents. 
So it's an interesting thing when you were kind of commenting on how does this apply in the contemporary world? What might the differences be for the generations that suffer together, as, as you as you mentioned, in then Palestine or Syria? It's a very interesting point because I think there are many things that exist now that didn't then. There are resources for information apart from anything. And, and may, maybe being within the family where you are going through terrible things, maybe that is a kind of connection where you bear witness to one another. Yeah. In so real time. in real time. time. Exactly. Exactly. And I just in my book, and it's taken this long, it's the first time that I've really been witnessed. You know, that I had to find a lifelong quest, really. How does my story, which isn't my standalone story, it's a three-generation story, and it's a story of many families, but how do I get airtime? You know, how, I'm not a musician, how do I get a platform from which to tell my story? And it's been utterly, you know, awesome and shocking as well, because it's, you know, very mixed bag for me that my book has become, it's almost embarrassing to me because I so wasn't prepared for it, a huge bestseller and, and you know, everybody's talking about it. I didn't know. The book is called, say it in German, and it's published in German, and why did you decide to publish it in Germany? So the name of my book is Letter to Breslau. I don't speak German, so I'm not going to say in German because I feel embarrassed. But the literal translation of my book is Letter to Breslau, my story uh, across three generations. It's published by Surkamp, which is a very big deal in Germany. Uh, okay, so I had an epiphany, and, and I don't use the word lightly, about two and a half, three years ago, when I began to realise I was approaching a scary birthday with a naught on the end. And um, I kind of... Just, had this idea that I wanted to write my memoirs because I, I kind of thought this is what I need to do. Then my mother was addressing the Bundestag, German parliament, on Holocaust Memorial Day. I think it was two and a half years ago, something like that. And I was obviously there um, and it was a very big deal. Uh, and I sat where I usually am in one audience place or another, and this time in the VIP place in the Bundestag. And my mother gave the most powerful address, as she always does. And I sat there thinking, so again, what does all this mean? And what's going to happen next year? And thinking about all of that. And I became quite clear in my mind what my job was, what I needed to do, and how my voice could have some resonance. In a series of, sort of smaller epiphanies, realised how my book needed to take shape. And that it wasn't just my memoir, that it was actually my job my job to give my grandparents and the three generations of Blaskers a place to be because there is no cemetery, there is no grave, there is nothing. But we all exist in the book together. So it had to be in Germany because that's where my family were from. That's what was stolen from us, that life. And the message, the message, and, and this is what has been amazing because Germans, as you probably know, carry so much guilt and my book, the reaction from my generation uh, or older, whose parents were perpetrators, had been massive. My first fan letter came from an 85-year-old son of a Nazi who's a psychiatrist who said, 
reading my book, it enabled him to understand his own life much more. Now, that blew me away. That really blew me away. Yeah, it's very, it's very interesting uh, construct in your book. You use the letters that Maya, the young girl Maya, writing to her grandparents, who she's never seen and never will because they were killed, and you recreate everything that happened to your mother and your aunt and yourself and so on through these letters. You're bringing your, your grandparents up to date, and that's a very, very nice way of, of, of telling that story and yet telling your own story on top of it. Your mother's story and your stories also overlapped. They came together when you visited Auschwitz. That's when you actually did bear witness to her, unwittingly maybe. I don't know. I was the first family member to go back with my mother to any of these places. But it was done with the BBC crew uh, for a documentary. And it was terrible for me because I... You know, I was witnessing my mother witnessing me whilst I was witnessing all of these things. I was in the prison cell. I was in the concentration camp. I was in all of these places. And at that time, because we're going back 25 years, 24 years, my mother was still a very reluctant narrator. She wasn't ready to talk, but I had to be the interviewer. It was the most difficult, challenging, horrible experience I had a total crisis after. I'd also just had a child, and it, it, it was horrific. The filming started in this country, I think, then, then Berlin, then Breslau, uh, which is where I was in the prison cell with my mother, the prison cell that she would, was in. And then the trip continued to... Um, what was the question just then again? You say that that was a very traumatic yes, time. me. So, so it's interesting that happened just then. Yeah. yeah. So w when we arrived in this Bratislav, that used to be Breslau, but it's the same platform, the same station, where both my father's and my mother's history was. So, but I broke down. And my mother, whether it was conscious or unconscious, she turned away from me. And that became a kind of a metaphor, really, for the whole experience, because she couldn't be witnessed and she couldn't witness me. And my mother did abandon me in the experience, but she couldn't do anything else. Having viewed some of the YouTube video of your mother and you together in a couple of, of forums, you seem to have a very interesting relationship. You're not competing with each other and you're not sort of there's no hostility or anything. I mean, I don't know if it's all managed or if you really don't don't feel that way because it's quite a trajectory, just the relationship to your mother. I mean, I'm, I want to say, you know, I love my mother so much. I mean, I really love my mother. And she tells me constantly, and you'll have heard it on film, I'm a, I was a terrible mother. You poor Maya, she's a terrible mother. But she really wasn't. My mother is fierce and I was always scared of her. I've only recently become a little less scared. I think we've forgiven each other. You know, I wasn't the daughter she imagined, and I can't imagine ever having had another mother. When she actually said to me for the first time in Breslau, I was the wrong mother for you. That was so painful when she said that, but she so was not the wrong mother for me. She was the only mother, the only mother for me. I think she's forgiven me, and because I've brought a lot of suffering into the family, 
And I absolutely have forgiven her if there was ever anything to forgive. I took on the mantle of needing to protect my mother's legacy and find my own voice, which I think my mother has been quite astounded by. Before we end, your book, anything else you want to say about why it was not published in England? Or I would love my book to be in the English language, to be in America or Canada. You know, because I know there's obviously a huge community of second generation people and, and all kinds of people who are interested in these things in America and in Canada, because I feel my voice is much more resonant there. And I know, and I'm deeply unreligious and unspiritual, I know who was sitting on my shoulder guiding me. And the way in which the doors opened and I end up, you know, in the publishing house of Rilke and Goethe and Hess. Is that also been transmitted in the same way as your mother's trauma? Is that what you're suggesting? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that, I mean, I don't think I know that I have been helped along the way. And, and, and the only way that I can really understand that is that there is a transmission of, of a, a really good energy, which in Germany, I do all kinds of really interesting things, you know, and... I've recently taken German citizenship and I'm on my way very soon, please God, to having a home in Berlin. So there is a movement happening and there is a very strong sense of connection and I know it's where I'm meant to be. You know, I've wasted a long time to really be alive and I've discovered what it means to really be alive and engaged. So you wrote something that you feel in a way, in a strong way, that Germany is where you're from even though you don't speak German. It was not just that you didn't speak German, you and your brother rejected speaking German. No, 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 no. My parents wouldn't allow us. So my parents spoke German to each other. It's their first language. But what was conveyed was it was not the language that was meant for the kinder. It was the forbidden language. I'm sorry, I don't want to interrupt you. We, we have to have somewhere in this conversation a discussion of the science basis for this transmission. I know you're not you're not that kind of scientist, but, but what is epigenetics? Epigenetics is a, a new area of science because we've now discovered so much more about how the brain works. And there can be genetic changes that take place in profound suffering, Holocaust survivors, that then genetically impacts on the way in which um, the gene uh, pool is informed and can be transmitted into the next generation. So when I heard about this, it, it came as a sort of a huge relief that suddenly, having had a disavowal all my life of my suffering or my experience, my God, there's a science now, it's called something, offering an important aspect to the way in which people can think about and talk about this. It's a new science, so there's a debatable amount of empirical evidence, you know. But also the language, we don't have the language to adequately talk about it yet either. So to, to end our communication, just tell people how they can learn more about you, your mother, your work, your, your YouTube presence, your book. I appear to have quite a presence on YouTube. I think a lot of stuff I've done, someone Googles my name, they'll get all kinds of options of... of uh, how to contact me if they want to. Say your name. Maya Laska-Valfish. 
Lasko, L-A-S-K-E-R. Falfish, W-A-L-L-F, Freddie, I, S for sugar, C-H. Good luck with all of that, Maya. I'm really so happy we're able to overcome technical difficulties and have a conversation. Put two Jewish women together, they're either going to get hysterical or get it sorted. Yeah. <laughs> we did very well. So, My pleasure. Bye. Been listening to Maya Lasker Wallfish talking about the transmission of transgenerational trauma. You can hear tidings right here on the second Wednesday of the month and anytime on hazelcon.com. All tidings programs are produced by Tony Ernst.